Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hi, it's Lainey. It's Joanna. And welcome to Show Your Work. Season finale. Season two finale. Yeah. I'm fully expecting for you to give me homework at the end of this episode to be completed by the time we start season three. Oh, I have a list for you right now, (laughs) but do you mean new homework that I'm only going to come up with over the course of this podcast? Sure, sure, whatever. I mean, I know, Americans. By the time. (laughs) Uh, We have other shit for you to do also. You need to do, there's a lot you got to get on. I think that's what you should do at the end of this episode is assign homework to me and everybody else. Well, some of the homework everybody else is caught up with, but in our pre-discussion of what we Did you just shame me? I sure did. did. (laughs) Uh, Because in our pre-discussion today, as we were prepping what we were going to talk about, uh, The Good Place came up twice, two times, and two times you did not react. And everybody else who's listening to this podcast has watched it. I'm sorry. I have done six episodes. That, no. You need to do all of them. They are 22 minutes long. They are a snack. There's no commercials even. Just get through it. Okay, but first I'm going to watch Set It Up. (laughs) And I can't wait. You're so happy about this. I'm so excited. Um, We are recording on Friday night. Uh, This will be posted on Tuesday, um, July 3rd. So I will have already seen Set It Up. But because I haven't seen it yet right now, I'm doing it. On Saturday, um, precisely at 8 o'clock, it's going to be amazing. I'm going to eat pizza for the first act. Then for the second and third act, I'm going to tuck in. Because, you know, in any rom-com, in the second and third act is when you need to be really comfortable and really cozy. What do you mean tuck in? Like when you're eating pizza in bed, you're upright. Sorry, sorry. No, you left (laughs) out an essential part of this conversation. So you're watching this movie in bed. Correct. Why are you looking at me like I'm stupid? Why are you shaming me now? Why wouldn't I watch it in bed? Isn't that where we watch our rom-coms? If we're not in the theater, a Netflix rom-com is watched in bed. I have never watched a movie in bed. Oh my God, it's the best. I do not have the, like, wherewithal to watch a movie in bed at all in any way, shape, or form. It's something about, like having to maintain the same body position for 90 minutes, like, I can do that for an episode of television, for sure. But, yeah. Well, you have slept in a room with me. You know what I'm like when I'm in bed. I don't move. No, it's true. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's true. I wake up in the same position I fall asleep in. We've been uh, traveling together now for, like, a a good number of years. And you're right. No, you – that's your cocoon. Yes. Um, There are different quadrants of the bed designated (laughs) for, like, yeah, where your – whatever, your workout clothes live and where your gadgets live and things. Yes. No, it's true. Um, Anyway, have you watched it yet? No, I haven't watched it. Okay, but – I've been waiting. 
people have been talking. Yes, me too. I've been saving it for this long weekend. Right. It's like the perfect long weekend watch. Yeah. Um, so I've been saving it for the fucking middle, smack dab in the middle of a long weekend. Here is my rationale for that. Because if it's so good and I want to watch it again, I have like two extra days. So if it's good and I'm hoping it is and I have every faith that it is, I will watch it for the first time on Saturday. Then I'm probably going to watch it again, back to back. Then I might what even is squeeze… back to back? What is that? <laughs> okay. Anyway, go on. Yes. Then I might even squeeze in a viewing on Sunday and then I can squeeze in a viewing on Monday as like a little like, oh, boo-hoo, got to go back to work the next day. Like your, but, your Sunday blues kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's… I cannot wait. And everything that I have read without spoilers about this movie is about how this is the rom-com of the summer so far. This is the summer of the rom-com. Right. Well, rom-coms have been gone. And yeah, it's the renewed interest in this and the kissing booth, I guess, Yeah, is kind of raising them back up from the dead. Which is trash, by the way, the kissing booth. But obviously, I still sat through it and like… You know, uh, yeah, you and about it. our friend Lorella like uh, <laughs> enumerated each and every plot point yes. for me on a very long text thread. Can I just though shout us out because season two, during season two, and in many instances during season one, we discussed the rom-com. We discussed why it wasn't around and why it should be around and what it needs to look like when it comes back around and what the value is and... Look where we are now. We are in the summer of the renaissance of the rom-com. Yeah, and I hope we continue. And, of course, we're thinking about Crazy Rich Asians and so forth as, you know, part of that continuance. And, uh, you know, last week we talked about To All the Boys I've Loved Before, uh, which is another Netflix rom-com that is on its way. So, yeah, maybe we are there. Uh, and this is not, like, an official topic of our discussion, but I just want to point out one of the reasons we talk about rom-coms all the time and the dearth of them and so forth, is because they were where a lot of women worked and got their training and came up in the industry, so them being gone is a problem, uh, on top of also being a problem for you not being able to be in your bed with a rom-com. And P.S., if the rom-com is where Nora Ephron spent her time, then nobody's fucking shitting on a rom-com. No, and in fact, that's kind of something we're going to touch on a little later, is that, like, there's nothing you need to shit on when people are working hard on it and and making good work. Um, I'm not going to watch the movie in bed. I'll tell you that. Fine. But I will, like, you're going to text me about it, right? And be like, turn on this are, movie. Are we text watching together then? Yeah, I'll do that. I, okay. I, sure. Yes. Okay. Uh, you will remind me and I'll be, like, behind. Uh, and then, yes, we'll, we'll do that. And I'm excited. I'm so excited. Uh, I wish people could see... The childlike glee that is on your face right now. If I said we were going to Disneyland, you would be less excited. I have so many things that I'm excited about, like rom-com, period, love it. But also, I can't wait to like look at every look of Lucy Liu's in the movie and take notes and be like, oh, next week I'm doing my hair like this. Oh, should I think about my eyeshadow or if I ever wear eyeshadow, do it like this? You know when I did that with a rom-com, which was not a rom-com at all, but I remember that sentiment so clearly was Mona Lisa Smile. Yes. Mona Lisa Smile, I remember, and that is a movie I will watch every day, mm -hmm. all the time, back to back. What's well, got your fave? I think I know it. It's got my fave on the one hand, and I'll, but I think I know it by heart. Uh, but like the looks, I was like, oh, I need a big, like, 
curly collared fisherman sweater. <laughs> I like, I definitely need like a waspy belt in maroon. Yeah. Just like Catherine. I, that is a good wardrobe movie. Well, I generally find that rom-coms do bring wardrobe mm-hmm. for us. Like Devil Wears Prada. Yeah. Every outfit still holds up. Yes. The makeup doesn't. Like Emily Blunt's makeup does not hold up. That's right. She had those red eyes all the time. And Or like the silver. Do you remember mm-hmm. how mm-hmm. like in the early 2000s, silver eyeshadow was the shit for some reason? Yeah, it's the silver eyes. But every outfit holds up. Interesting. Every look of Anne Hathaway, makeup and hair and wardrobe holds up. Yeah, but you know what? I'm, Anne Hathaway just wears good shit. Um, I maybe was less overwhelmed by the Ocean's 8 outfits than I wanted to be as a whole. Yeah. But everything on Anne Hathaway sings every time she walks in a room. She knows how to wear a fucking thing. I actually... I I agree with you in terms of Ocean's 8 as a whole, mm-hmm. but there were like bombs dropped individually. There were moments, there were outfit moments, but like I yeah, I wanted it to be a nonstop parade of glee and chiffon. It was more hair porn. Yeah, the bangs were really good. The bangs were really good. Like we're we're talking about Kate Blanchett. Kate Blanchett's Bangs were really good. Sandra Bullock's beachy wave was great. Yeah, Bullock has had that wave going for a long time. That is the – and that is a hard thing to pull off, the beachy wave. Concur. And that, like, color mix is hard. I loved Rihanna's braids. Like, there was some good hair. Anyway, we are doing our season finale today. Uh, We do not have a return date yet for season three. However – We don't? I thought we were back in the fall. Oh, we are back. I don't think we have an exact day. Oh, I don't think we have a day. But like, tell the people. Like, that sound. I thought I was going to wind up at the bottom of a river just now. <laughs> no, we are back in the fall. However, we will be dropping in for at least one special episode during the hiatus. We like, uh, you know, it's hard to stay away. And I already have uh, an idea um, that I'm just pitching to you on the fly right now for you to consider, Duanna. I'm sorry, I was busy Googling beachy waves. But yes, go on. <laughs> um... Since we're talking about rom-coms, since we've mentioned them so much on this podcast in seasons one, since we've mentioned them so much on this podcast on seasons one and two, since you brought up Crazy Rich Asians, maybe we do a podcast after Crazy Rich Asians comes out. I mean, I love that idea, uh, but what if, what if it's, what is the show your work of, uh, can you do a show your work if you love absolutely everything? Conversely, if you don't love absolutely everything, can you talk about it? These are the questions that are debatable to be answered. Uh, But yes, I will meet you back here after we've seen that movie. And Kathleen, if you're listening, and we know you are, we'll think about inviting you. Yeah, maybe. She is the the one who gets the most feels when it comes to rom-coms. Anyway, all right, let's get started. Our first topic. So we didn't set this up to be a a thread here, but actually our first story is about rom-coms, or sort of. Uh, You surprised me with this news. Yeah, it's being reported that Greta Gerwig is set to direct a remake of Lil' Women. Uh Uh-huh. And here are the actors negotiating to be in the film. Go on. Meryl Streep, Emma Stone, Saoirse Ronan, Timothy Chalamet. All right. (laughs) I mean, uh, 
It's like if you asked a class of grade sixes to cast the movie, like, based on a teen magazine that they had in front of them. Most obvious casting, you mean? Like, stupendously obvious. So, I mean, I don't hate any individual person. Um, It's rumored that Saoirse Ronan would be Joe. uh, That makes Timothy Chalamet Laurie, I guess. So, okay, these guys are going to be in their, what, 89th movie together? Um, (laughs) And with Greta Gerwig, right? Yeah. Uh, Which is great. They obviously work together. And, like, yeah, I, I buy her as plucky sassy Joe. Uh, Joe basically is Lady Bird, so sure. And just to go back, I mean, there is a version that I think is considered beloved, right? Uh, It's sure. It's 90s canon. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. 94, Winona Ryder, Kirsten Dunst, Claire Claire Danes, Danes. uh, who played Uh, mom. uh, Susan Sarandon was Marmy and... uh, Trini Alvarado was an actress who played Meg, and I don't know okay. um, if she is as well-known as the rest of those four. <laughs> so, but. And Christian Bale is Laurie. Ugh. Yes. So just to give people a touchstone out there, so Susan Sarandon, now Meryl Streep. Yeah. Presumably. Like, I mean, fucking Meryl Streep's not going to be Joe. So, yeah, no, no, no. Yes, yes, you are correct, yes. So then it's um, – Emma would be uh, the Trini Alvarado right. character. Meg is the like uptight, uh, proper sister. And this is all slightly speculative. Now we're we're doing some educated guessing, helped by some of the trades, but these are not firmly announced. Age 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 wise, though, this works. It works. Uh, yeah, you certainly are not going to have Emma Stone play younger than Saoirse Ronan, or you yeah. Know, or somebody older than her to play characters who at the start of the at the start of the book anyway I don't know if they'll be at the start of of Greta Gerwig's script but at the start of the book they are teenagers they range from like 17 to 12 right so Sersha would be Winona Ryder yep Timothy Chalamet Christian Bale <laughs> sure which like, I know it's a laughing like it's laughable now but if you go back and watch Christian Bale as Laurie, like, he's a baby, so it makes sense. I kind of hated him back then, too, so uh, not Laurie. Love Laurie, so, you know, but yeah, okay. Okay, so, uh, and Laurie ends up with Beth. Amy. Amy. Yes. Bite your tongue. Um. <laughs> right. Laurie ends up with Amy because Joe falls in love with… Well, no, not till later. Lori says to Joe, are we doing this? Lori says to Joe, like, I, I want you. I've always wanted you. I love you. And she's like, yeah, I can't do it. Um, and everybody's like, what's wrong with you? You've been, like, mentally set up with that guy for a million years. Right. And she's like, yeah, no, I can't. Peace. Uh, and yes, eventually meets uh, Professor uh, Friedrich Baer. Uh, and that's a whole other Okay, my spin-off. point here is that once again, as it happened in Lady Bird… Timothy and Sersha do not end up together. Right. <laughs> but like… Which everybody wants them to. Why? I mean, well, okay. I mean, right. whatever. Like, okay. anyway. So… But I just… this It just is… Yeah, it's predictable. It's boring, right? Like, as, uh, as the Mary Sue said, like, can we not get John Boyega in here already? <laughs> well, exactly. So if you're living under a rock and you never read Little Women… Uh, Little Women, of course, is the story of four girls, uh, Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy, are these four sisters who are all different in many ways. You know, one's a 
kind of a good girl, and one's shy and retiring, and one's kind of a bitch, and one is uh, one's a writer and like cuts her hair off and wants to be a boy and so forth, and they are all charming, and daddy's away in the war and so forth. And look, it's a it's they have it, the reason it's still popular is because there's these great stories that uh, you know that are totally of their time that still apply, right? Uh, when the two sisters are going to a dance, uh, the one sister's gloves are really grubby and disgusting, and her sister says, you can't, you can't wear those. And she's like, oh, well, I don't have any others. I spilled lemonade on them. Sorry. And her sister's like, god damn it. Fine. Wear one of mine. You're going to stretch it out. I'm so mad at you. And they have this very natural, normal sister bitch fight. They may not have said god damn it in the actual text by Louisa May Alcott. Um, but honestly, I reread that book every few years because it holds up. So let me take this outward before we zoom in. Do you see the value of this remake overall, period? And the second part of that question is, given Greta Gerwig's work with Lady Bird… And Saoirse Ronan and Timothy Chalamet in that movie. Is there a way that Greta Gerwig could reimagine Little Women to have a new relevance? It's a great question. Um, I was at a screenwriting conference last weekend and listening to this uh, really, really amazing uh, writing coach, a guy named Corey Mandel, was talking about this impossible feat that he was asking one of his students to do, uh, which was, in a nutshell, if the end of your movie is about a character breaking free from a controlling parent, then you have to show that at the beginning, even though and the guy's going, well, I can't because that's the end of the movie. How the hell do you show that at the beginning? It's impossible. I can't. He tried. It didn't work. Blah, blah, blah. And in response, this lecturer, Corey Mandel, puts up a clip from Lady Bird. In fact, it's the opening scene where... Saoirse Ronan and Laurie Metcalf are talking kind of amiably in the car, and then it turns brutal, and Lady Bird is so mad that she bails out of the car, leaves her mother like she's going to leave her at the end. So short story is Greta Gerwig's a master storyteller. Uh, Yeah, I think I have some little women bias, as I mentioned. I enjoy it. I have enjoyed it, and I do think some of it is timeless, Uh, you know, people love the stories that are in it, like being humiliated by your teacher, you know, and and bitching at your sisters and dying of consumption. Maybe not that one. Uh, But yeah, do I think Greta Gerwig can probably put some new life into it? Sure. I'm not seeing it from this casting, though. You know, like I, I, this Mm -hmm. is, that's the hard thing, right? So say you're Greta Gerwig, yeah. and you're getting more and more opportunity now to do bigger things because she had such a huge year, and it's amazing. But then they say, who do you want? Yeah. And look, I'm not saying it's a hardship to choose from Hollywood's best, but like you have this stable of people that you already have, that you've already known. There's no sort of unknown potential. I don't know. This, when this popped up, it reminded me of an interview that I did this week on The Social. We had an author on. The book is called Aisha at Last. The author is Asma Jalaluddin. And Aisha at Last is 
basically a reimagining of Pride and Prejudice, except every character is Muslim. And when we asked the author about how this ended up happening, she talked about the fact that she was, she has always wanted to write to a mirror as opposed to a window. And I believe it's an analogy that she got from NPR's Code Switch podcast. So what that means is for a lot of people, when they're consuming art, and I've written about this briefly on the site today, when they're consuming art, they're, they're watching it from outside of a house through a window, the lives of other people, and having to relate to it that way. A mirror, of course, is different because you're seeing yourself in those stories. So I think this is an obvious point that I'm making. So when you're taking a work like Pride and Prejudice, which is a story with themes that are, you know, relevant now, as relevant now as they were in Jane Austen's day, how do you put a fresh spin on it? One way is to give it life in a refreshing is to give it life through a different pair of eyes, which is essentially what we said about the rom-com several, episode, several episodes ago and fairy tales when we were talking about Crazy Rich Asians. Um, I'm not saying this is how little women should have been interpreted. I'm just saying when I looked at this cast, Meryl, Emma, Sersha, Timothy, I was like, wow. Well, just surprised <laughs> me a little. Like, yeah, yeah, get somebody who wasn't sitting three tables from each other at the Golden Globes, maybe. Um, but to your point uh, about the universal kind of themes and things like that, it's it's not like it's a reimagining in the sense that everybody can relate to Pride and Prejudice and all the anxieties and sisterdoms and whatever. That's the same deal with Little Women. Everybody can relate to what this story is and how it's being told, which brings us to a really elementary point, which is to say people will go to see it because of the universal story and not because of who's in it. People are going to go see your Little Women remake, whether Meryl Streep is in it or not. Like, come on, it's Little Women. It's a slam dunk. Take a risk. It just seems unexciting. So... Yeah, I guess the script is amazing, but I'm not, I'm not bowled over by any of this. One of the details I was looking for about this is like they would update it for, I don't know, 1980 or some shit like that. As opposed to 2018 or 19? <laughs> no, like they would update it so it doesn't like happen after the Civil War, but that it takes place, I don't know, like… In 1980, literally. I know, but why, why 1980? I don't know. You just want a period piece <laughs> Yes, still. I just want, I okay. still want a period piece. Um, so one of the reasons I was looking for, like, whether or not Greta Gerwig would be taking this to a different era is because when you talk to me about women living in a house together and it's around the time of the Civil War, in recent memory, we just had a movie like this. I know it was a lot darker. Last year… Directed by Sofia Coppola, The Beguiled. Right. Nicole Kidman is the matriarch. Yeah. Kirsten Dunst is, I guess, the Joe. I mean, totally different story. I get it. But, I mean, I'm thinking about the costumes and they're kind of looking the same, no? I mean, <laughs> I just, like, I, 
I get I get where you're going. You you can see the lineup. Yeah. Well, what you're saying here is like it's just a whole bunch of blondes. Yeah. But or red-haired people. Um, Former grown-up ingenues. Uh, sure. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm gonna fight back with you a little bit here and say like Little Women is in many ways like the original feminist story. You know, Joe March earns her money as a writer and blah, blah, blah. And like Marmee runs the home while dad is People gone. People tried blah, to blah, argue blah. that The Beguiled was a feminist movie they too. They did not. They, they did. They did not do it in a good enough job. How I about just, that? I don't think that the movie did it in a good enough job. But Fair enough. Yeah. So I get, but I guess when I say that, I think that's why this is disappointing because, yeah, it seems like a same old, same old. Um, and maybe we expect that from lesser, lesser films like The Beguiled. But you want little women to do more. I do. Um, I don't know. I want to be surprised by this, but I'm not so far. Well, I haven't seen any detail here about whether or not the adaptation will be reimagined in a different era. Um, it does say that Greta was initially brought in to rewrite a draft, but following Lady Bird's success, Sony amped up pre-production in order to woo Gerwig into picking this as her next movie. So it doesn't seem like the idea was even hers to begin with. That's very interesting. Right? Um, yeah. And in fact, actually, it says here that the project had been set up at Columbia Pictures for some time with Amy Pascal set to produce, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah. And then they had brought in Greta to rework the script. And then Lady Bird happened. They're like, oh, my God, you're a great director. Why don't you direct it too? So this didn't come out of her brain. Right. That said, uh, obviously, now that it's being touted and publicized as a Greta Gerwig project, you know, it's going to have her stamp on it. And like I said earlier, you know, it, there's evidence that Greta Gerwig is a, you know, she's an inventive storyteller. So I I, I want to say, oh, maybe we'll be surprised. That feels slightly optimistic for me here. I don't know. I I wish there was some, you're, I, I don't know why you want them to be in 1980. I can't, I can't understand <laughs> it, but... If there was something that we could cling on to to understand how this reimagining justifies some kind of sleepy casting, then maybe I'd be more excited. You are right now because clearly you, as you've said, you read Little Women up and down all around. You probably read it like at least 20 times. Uh, fair enough. Sure. Um, so you are like a stan. You are. I mean, that's strong, but like, I, I, it's part of my personal canon, sure. So, am I gonna like one day compare you to all the like Star Wars original hardcore people who go and complain and say, like, did you just call me? <laughs> I'm not even gonna use the word for what you called me because I can't, I don't wanna give it airtime, but. Actually, no, that's not the comparison I want to make. The comparison I want to make is I think that that's what those Star Wars fans want. It's just a retread over and over and over again. And if they were to do some reimagining, you is what you want. But can are is there a chance that there are some like truly original, the original is best little women people who are going to be like, what the 
fuck is John Boyega? What the fuck is John Boyega doing in another movie to ruin another beloved fucking piece of canon, whatever bullshit? Yeah, sure. Fanboy, fanboy, fanboy. Yeah, sure. I went to grade nine with some of those people. Like, but they, uh, but like, there was no. Like, the, the book itself was the canon. Like, there were no images of what these people looked like, except maybe Amy was a blonde. Like, you can be a blonde in any in any permutation. But, like, I don't think that, you know, as much as you say the 1994 version of Little Women was beloved, I'm also going to say it was largely unnecessary uh, I don't think it got anybody into the story who wasn't already there. And probably everybody who saw it was already a, a beloved fan of the books. So that's the task that's in front of this movie is, are they going to get anybody else in? Are they going to bring in new people, new ideas, or somehow introduce this story to a new audience? And if they are, it's a well-worn cast uh, to do it with. I'm not saying they can't, but that's what's facing them. To try and prove that this has some relevance, you have to believe that, uh, you know, that it's not the same old people and the same old stuff. So I hope. I hope. Okay, well, speaking of someone who could totally have been cast in Little Women, Mia Vashikovska. I just want to be really clear. Right now, at the start of our discussion, I'm not going to say her last name ever because I'm not going to say it in your fancy Polish way. Okay, so I'm saying it in a fancy Polish way, Vashikovska. Uh-huh. That is the way it's pronounced, and I happen to be married to a Pole, and if I did not pronounce it properly, I would get dragged. That's all fine and good, but I'm not going to attempt… You've, you've had how many years now to cultivate your Polish tongue? Almost 20. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, I'm not doing that. No, uh, I don't blame you. So uh, I'm not trying to misname her. I'm you not call going her to, Mia. I'm just going <laughs> to call her Mia. You guys are going to know who we're talking about, right? Yeah. Mia right. Vashikovska, an article I sent to you written by Charles Bromesco for Vulture, the radical self-sufficiency of Mia Vashikovska. But actually, actually, I'm actually going to mansplain a little bit in case you don't know who we're talking about. Uh, it's the the artist formerly known as Mia Wasikowska, as she is uh, <laughs> North Americanly known. But just in case you thought we were talking about some obscure, you know, DJ or, I don't know, golfer or something. We're trying to avoid Yasik jumping in on this podcast, so never say it that way again. That's fine, but we also want the people to believe we're talking about somebody who counts as uh, having appeared in Hollywood. I just wanted to reassure the listeners that yes. this is who we're talking about. Okay, so she is in a film out right now called Damsel with Robert Pattinson. Um, Oh, God, that's why you wanted to talk about this topic. God, no, I don't want to talk about him. Anyway, anyway, but you will know her from In Treatment. A lot of people, I think, would know her from In Treatment, right? I don't know. In Treatment is one of those ones which I love. If you love her, definitely watch her episodes, even if you don't at all. In Treatment, for those who don't know, was a really weird, delightful, intensive show where Gabriel Byrne played a therapist. And each day he would give therapy to a different person, which we got to watch. And there Mm -hmm. were great people. Blair Underwood was on it. Um, Mia uh, (laughs) is really, really excellent on it. Uh, Alison Pill has has a run on it. 
Anyway, um, a really fascinating show that my uh, husband refers to as the most depressing show on television. So, you know, stand by for that. I don't agree. But, uh, yeah, that's kind of one of her first breakthroughs. Blockbuster would be Alice in Wonderland. Uh, yeah, I guess so. But yeah. the crowd pleaser is The Kids Are All Right. Yes. And my personal favorite that she was in, Jane Eyre. Okay. Directed by Carrie Fukunaga. Did um, we need that movie? Did we need that remake? Just out of curiosity. Uh, yeah. Okay. I really, really, really love that film. Anyway, Mia in this article, um, it's a rundown of her career. And it's about her career choices. What she could have been, where she was headed, where she went instead, um, what she didn't care about. And we thought it was really interesting to compare Mia's career and this piece on her with an article you sent me about Alison Brie. Mm-hmm. Season two of Glow has just dropped on Netflix. And uh, the Daily Beast did a piece on her that was titled Alison Brie's Epic Fight to Star in Glow and Speak Her Mind. How do I protect myself? What is really interesting to me about this is that uh, both articles are super, super deep uh, and like lengthy and they sort of dig into a lot of topics. But the Mia article is about the ways in which her choices have kept her sort of always in the mix, never what you would call A-list, but always having the option to tap into the A-list, right? Is that a fair statement? Yes. She could have it if she wanted it, right? Right. Then, by contrast, and they're not up for the same roles necessarily, but Alison Brie is a totally different kind of actor, the kind of person who struggles and then has some success and is in some things. You know, most people know her from Community or from Mad Men, like she was doing very well, but who has to fight to be seen as a lead. Making that transition from, you know, seventh or eighth on the call sheet, or in the case of Mad Men, maybe closer to 24th, I don't know, uh, and then trying to say, no, no, I'm not a supporting character, I'm a lead. And the choices of Mia Wasikowska, I dared again, uh, that keep her kind of in at the forefront of a adjacent list or, or in that mix all the time, it's interesting uh, to watch the choices that one makes and the choices that the other has to make in order to aspire to get there. Well, it's interesting because when we're talking about Mia… I think back to our previous conversation, we were talking about Emma Stone. They're aroundish the same age. Emma Stone, of course, has the Oscar and she's worked with renowned directors. She could have her pick of any project she wants. Um, but I would posit that the way people feel about their talent, Emma and Mia, it's in the same vein. I do believe that while Mia is not as householdy of a name as Emma is and hasn't had the Oscar and hasn't, you know, done this, that, and the other, La La Land, whatnot. When people in the industry think about Mia, they think about skill. And there's no doubt that Mia can deliver on the same kind of performance, opportunity, potential that Emma Stone can. And yet Mia has made 
much different choices. And that's what this article is about. I'm. It's so funny because I both totally agree with you and utterly disagree, which is to say uh, I think she's probably seen as more talented than Emma Stone. Ah, okay. Uh, I think that Mia Wasikowska gives me that impression of being, uh, you know, an actor's actor, like somebody who can dig into the ugly stuff or whatever you want to call that kind of idea uh, and is quite natural with it. Uh, where I would maybe disagree with you is I don't think she can sell the the winningness and the charm and the like whatever, that that goofy that girl thing that people seem to come to Emma Stone for over and over and over, right? Oh, I just don't think she's, I just think she's chosen not to. I don't disagree with you, but that's not her brand, right? Like she's part of how she has stayed on the A-list, even when she's not a household name per se, is she has that prickliness, which is just prickly enough to be attractive. You know who I think is the closest in vibe I'm going to gonna be annoyed whoever it is, right? No. It's one of your faves. Oh. I love her. We love her. Carrie Mulligan. To whom? Mia. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, I kind of get that. Carrie, too, has like made choices, avoided certain things. Yeah, for sure. And like sidestepped a few things and not taken everything that comes her way and also like been busy starting a family and that kind of thing. I thought you were going to say somebody else altogether who maybe falls into the Alison Brie category. Uh, I thought that when you said, oh, one of your faves, I thought we were going to talk about somebody who, despite being very palatable, maintains a bit of an edge and maybe just doesn't quite get to the, like maybe is clawing into auditions more than we think she should have to. Mm-hmm. And that's Anna Kendrick. Yeah, no. Haven't even thought of her today until now. I I am not a crackpot. Yeah. I think that, uh, like, I did not want to say this, but since we're here, what we're talking about is a bit of, like, big dick energy, Right. This article is all about Mia Wasikowska being like, I'm not stressed about this. I can do this. I can direct and write and all these projects that she's been doing while we've been not paying attention Mm -hmm. and kind of being really attractive and, as I say, sort of A-list adjacent because she doesn't seem to want it that much. The other side of the coin are the people who desperately do want it and for those who... uh, find it to be, you know, a little out of reach. And but is Anna Kendrick who you're comparing to Alison Brie? Yeah, I mean Anna Kendrick and Alison Brie are not fighting for the same roles, but I suspect they may be walking a similar journey, right? Needing to really fight to be seen as able to carry this project, mm-hmm. needing to fight to be seen as not just a cute person or a funny person who can, you know, land a line, but who can maintain a whole project. Obviously, Anna Kendrick has headlined a lot of movies, but she hasn't really headlined a lot of roles. Do you know what I mean? She hasn't really had something built around her in a a character way that Emma Stone and Mia and countless others kind of have in spades. 
Well, this is what we're trying to drill down to is that, you know, that big dick energy of Mia Vashikovska has enabled her to have this radical self-sufficiency where she, it never feels like she's chasing. And yet there are actors like Alison Brie who in this article is saying, I had to convince people that I could be moved up, that I could go from supporting to lead. And I believe I have that in me. I had to convince other people. And it's probably going to be a nerve that stays with her her entire career. And there are actors like this who I think that we can sometimes, especially in women, um, criticize because in a very derivative way, that's trying. Well, it's interesting that you say that because uh, I have two thoughts. First of all, she said, I had to convince people and I think she will have to convince people. I think that will continue despite the success of GLOW, which I love, which is also on your homework list if you haven't been watching it. It's great. But I also, uh, you know, I note here in the article that she talks about how, quote, when I started out as an actress, I really wanted to be in movies. To me, being a movie star was the height of success as an actress. Of course, I've mostly worked in television Getting this job is where I had the realization that it's the character that matters. So that's also about trying, about finding one's lane, if you will, and being self-sufficient in that lane, right? And making that work for you as opposed to trying for an echelon that, yeah, that, that it is easy for people to shut you out of. I think that happens in real life too. It happens in real life when you are passed over because people don't see, quote, the leadership in you. I just don't think you're ready for that yet. I just don't think that you, I can't see you in that management role. I can't see you as a partner yet. How many of you out there have tried to get people to see you the way you know you can be seen? And unfortunately, I love that we're talking about this, unfortunately, you know that expression, where's the lie? You know what the lie is in your in what you said? The word yet. Usually when people say, I just don't see you that way yet. Mm-hmm. What they really mean is, I just don't see you that way. Ever. And what people learn, and this is true, yeah, on screen, off screen, in and out of Hollywood, is you have to go somewhere else and do something else for people to see you that way. You have to, wait for it, recast yourself as somebody who can be that manager, who can be a leader of people or whatever it is, uh, so that people see you in a new way, and then you change the story. And how many stories have we heard of people who have been at a firm for a long time, they're being passed over, they're not getting what they need, and they go. They go to another firm, They start up their own firm and suddenly you're getting the calls from the people you used to work with. Can you consult on this case? Can we bring you in for this? Rocketing to the top after years and years of stagnancy. I've seen it many, many times in like a dozen different industries. Like taking that risk is so risky and scary, but it's often the only way that you can reframe 
the way that people see the skills you know you have. You're not wrong. You have them. So that's where these two articles together are really fascinating to me because it's kind of having the blessing and deciding to do something unusual with it versus fighting tooth and nail for the blessing and knowing you might never get there. Who would you rather be? Oh, I mean, everybody, I think, you know, appreciates the idea of, oh, I just have all the, like, platform I want to make anything I want, but I'm more familiar with the scrapper. I get that. I know what that is to constantly be like, okay, I got to level up. You know, I was listening to you and Sasha talk about how she wants to do a chin-up or a push-up or something. Chin-up. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, uh, you know, I, I see this in a similar way, just being like, okay, I got an impossible task in front of me. I guess I'll try and fail a bunch until I don't fail anymore because all those failures are making you better, right? Like are getting you to the point where you're better. So yeah, I got a soft spot for a scrapper. Who would you rather be? I, you know, I think that, I think that as we continue on the path of like changing perspectives and unlearning or at least not relearning, but learning other things that will be compatible with what we already know, there is something to what we've been fed as that BDE, right? The cool factor of, oh, not trying. I'm just this thing and I, I'm just so, I can be cast in this and that and the other. I'm more like you. I'm a scrapper too. But I think that there's a, a certain level of conditioning and culture that has given us the idea that that BDE, that chill vibe, that no try per, like no try attitude or not looking like you're trying attitude is like the the default coolest position ever. I guess so, or it's just notable because it's so atypical. <clears throat> but I've never known a keener, an enthusiastic tryhard who ultimately didn't get pretty close to where they wanted to go. And I've known a lot of too cool for school people who are still on the couch metaphorically or actually. Right? Yeah. So if you're out there and you're a keener, a scrappy person. Keeners unite. And again, I mean, nobody's saying here that you need to quit your job and go somewhere else and make something of it and then be ha-ha to the other people. But… Um, nobody's not saying that either. <laughs> that would be awesome. But… As Duanna said, there are times when you are in a workplace, entertainment or not, and lots of the examples that we are citing, I mean, we're not naming and giving specifics because, you know, to protect the confidentiality and the trust of people, they're not in, like, in the entertainment industry. But when you are in that, for lack of a better word, rut in the workplace where your imagination has gone further than the people around you, a shakeup sometimes is worth it. I heard this great expression the other day, and it's really alliterative, but stay with me anyway. And it says, the antidote to anxiety is action. And I thought that was really like possibly pat, but pretty cute. You know, like if you're futzing all the time that they don't see you that way, change something and somebody's going to see you differently for sure. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Speaking of seeing things differently, we got an email from someone called Catherine. Catherine, thanks for listening. And um, she wrote to you, Duanna, and she wanted to talk about something that she called her guilty pleasures. Um, So here's her email. Would you guys be interested in talking about how some of our guilty pleasures are put into production? For example, the challenge, previously road rules, etc., is fascinating to me how they cut the scenes to be so addictive. I don't really even care about reality TV that much. This is literally the only one I watch. But now I follow all my favorite people on social and I'm completely bought into the concept. All... Also, how are all these contestants making money? Another example that comes to mind is Hard Knocks and whatever the Amazon continuation is called. Essentially, you are just following a football team, practicing and playing games, but the music and the drama they create is done incredibly well. I don't really care about football, but I'm so curious about the work behind it. So, <laughs> Catherine, I know you wanted specific answers to this about how what the work it is that goes into it, but here's the angle we're coming from. And it's about you calling these shows guilty pleasures and how we see things and how we've been seeing things one way because maybe we're told to see them that way when shouldn't we or maybe we should consider seeing them a different way. And that is not a guilty pleasure at all. Just a pleasure. Yeah. um, This is the thing. Any show that you're watching on television or any film you go see – uh, has a a crew of hundreds of people working on it. It is probably, depending on the type of show, it's somebody's job for, call it six months of the year. They're making their money for the year, let's say. Uh, and people work really, really extremely hard. Um, and they're trying to make good stories. The reason the stories that you're looking at are addictive is because they follow storytelling properties in the same way that dramas do. If you look at any scene in a reality show or a drama, it's all the same thing. You know, two people are interacting and then the villain walks in and you have a music cue that shows you that the villain is walking in and bad things happen and so forth. So why is one a guilty pleasure and the other not a guilty pleasure? I think, as you say, it's because we've been told to think of one as more worthy than the other. But that's not actually the case. Uh, And the greatest example of this, I think, is in the book Bachelor Nation by Amy Kaufman. It came out uh, a couple of months ago, and it is a really delicious read uh, that explains all about the the depths of production of The Bachelor, uh, and including how all those people make that money. Uh, But most importantly, Amy Kaufman, when she wasn't writing about The Bachelor was helping to break all the Me Too stories in L.A., uh, was a really important part of those stories in that process. There's nothing guilty about any of this work, right? There's nothing guilty about any of the work or the watching of it, I guess. That's right. I don't watch The Bachelor. You don't either. And we have covered it on the site because Kathleen watches it. And... (laughs) 
like <laughs> will lecture me for not getting it. But That's yeah. right. And listen, I'm not saying that some of the shit that I hear about that goes on on The Bachelor and its various permutations isn't um, unsettling. Eyebrow raising, yeah. But I think that's the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, but you can think that it's unsettling. You can think the messages that it is sending are not what you want and still acknowledge that there are people behind the scenes crafting stories, casting compelling characters, setting situations and stories up in such a way that you care deeply uh, you pointed out before we started talking that the other way to see how not a guilty pleasure this is and how much this is a workplace as much as any other is to watch Unreal, uh, which is a show on Lifetime, particularly the first season, is a really seamless look at work and women at work and the partnerships therein. And they do a good job at showing uh, how not guilty or casual or you know, ad hoc or whatever insult some douche at your office has called these shows that you watch, uh, that there's a lot of thought and depth going in there. But you know what? I will say that I probably was quite dismissive of shows like The Bachelor many years ago and still am dismissive of certain shows. That said, a few days ago, I was thinking about a book and I can't remember the name of the book anymore. I will try to remember by the time we put the show notes up. But I was thinking about a book that I read on the luxury goods and luxury brands business. Mm -hmm. And so let's say that you take like one of those giant um, French conglomerates that owns like, I don't know, Chanel or Fendi or I was going to say, whatever. don't you mean the French conglomerate yes. that owns all of them? Okay, yes. exactly. And so their revenue streams are set up so that it's just not one thing. We know it for handbags and fashion and runway, but, um, but what funds that revenue stream, so you could call it like the prestige side of the business, the very expensive side of the business, is actually like your $40 fragrance or your $60 fragrance. So those um, fragrances that you can get at the drugstore, even the counter, like at the high-end department store counter fragrances, like that is, I'm putting quotes up, the cheapest part of their like line, their collection of products. And it's making money on those things that funds haute couture and funds ready to wear, and funds the multi, 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 multi-million dollar salaries of the designers. And I was thinking, I, I, I was, I, I don't know, I can't remember why me reading that book, which was about 10 years ago, popped into my mind, but then I was wondering whether or not you can make that analogy to, like, broadcast television. A thousand percent. So the shows like The Bachelor… Which is… Phenomenally successful. Um, a mega moneymaker. Mega, mega, mega moneymaker. Which is the thing that the high-end fashion conglomerates market to, let's face it, the middle class. Well, yeah, to everyone, basically. That's right. right? You can't afford to own a couture outfit, but you can afford to own, like, the same logo on your perfume bottle, which makes you feel closer to the brand 
That is where the money comes in, just like The Bachelor is bringing in tons and tons and tons of money for ABC, which is where ABC is making some of their money to pay for scandal and whatever. Right. Is that… Do you, What do you think of that analogy? Uh, I don't disagree with it in the sense that uh, easily The Bachelor is the biggest moneymaker and the biggest moneymaker means the biggest and most popular with advertisers. Like at a certain point, you have to go, well, it's hugely successful. They are doing something right. I'm not saying that everything has to be populist or that I don't spend most of my time watching HBO shows or whatnot, but you know, at a certain point you go, well, they are giving the people what they want. And not just the people, by the way. If you do read that Amy Kaufman book, with which I am in no way associated, uh, she has little segments where people who you would not expect, well-known people, talk about how addicted they got to The Bachelor and why they love it and so forth, including uh, Joshua Molina, who was on Scandal, among others. Um And so what that says to me, it goes back to Catherine's point in her email, which is they are doing good storytelling. You may not like the the feminist, you may not like the sort of patriarchal tones that are involved and the forced marriages and engagements, and it's not for me either. But the reason it's compelling, the reason that people who swore up and down they would never be interested can't look away is because the work that's being done is quality work, which is part of the reason why the advertisers are so interested, which is part of the reason why it does so well with so many people and makes all the money, which is to say, to bring it back to your analogy, if that $40 perfume smelled like shit, then that model wouldn't work, right? Right. And another part of this, to extend the analogy that's what happens in publishing too. Mm-hmm. It is the quote chiclet and those books, the romance novels, the light books, L-I-T-E, that make money for the publishing industry so that they in turn can go pay Jonathan Franzen fucking whatever millions for like the 800-page tome Basically, Dean Koontz is paying the bills of everybody <laughs> who ever wanted to be an author, right? That's right. But those are the books, the, just the Franson books or whatever. I mean, I'm doing a little Jennifer Weiner here, but like those are the books that get written up in the whatever literary review, this, that, and the other up my ass um, and get taken super seriously. And the other books are the ones who are like, at, that we, you know, <laughs> that book. Not that I am… That said, I will still maintain that Fifty Shades of Grey is trash. (laughs) But Fifty Shades of Grey funded probably lots and lots and lots of other books. This is why, and I didn't expect to get here, but this is one of the many reasons why I really love Dietland, which we talked a bit about on the podcast before, uh, because Dietland, the show, which is show run by Marty Noxon, which is on AMC, is uh, based on a book written by Sarai Walker, and the front of it looks like chick lit, if you will. It's got a cherry on the front of a bright blue cover. It looks like a poppy beach read. And it's about a revolution, you know, taking down the patriarchy from the inside and so forth. And I like the stealthness of that. Uh, I like that being underestimated is sometimes helpful. 
so all of this to say that no matter what form of entertainment you enjoy, possibly Fifty Shades of Grey aside, but even then, like, there are a lot of people working on that movie, um, there doesn't need to be any guilty in your pleasure because you are consuming things that people worked hard on and that on some level, nobody tries to make something shitty. On some level, people really believe they're doing good stuff at all times. Which brings us to... <laughs> Love this segue. Yes, go on. Porn. I sent you this story, and it wasn't even your birthday. <laughs> and I was like, uh, what did you say here? You were... Hang on. Okay, well, this is what you sent over. The title was Ha 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 Podcast, <laughs> then a link, and then Ha 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 Show Your Work LOL. And I wrote back, oh, I am so in for this. So, and I'm, I'm actually shocked that my husband hasn't rejoined the podcast. He doesn't know yet what's about to happen. So it's an article in PC Mag. And the title is Pornhub adds closed captioning category. At launch, the collection includes more than 1,000 top viewed videos, which offer descriptive and interpretive text for individuals who are hard of hearing. Good news for porn fans who are hard of hearing or deaf. Pornhub today launched a closed captioning category just for you. At launch, the collection includes more than a thousand top view videos from the site's straight, popular with women, gay, bi, and trans categories. Each video will display descriptive and interpretive text aimed to help improve the experience for users who are not able to hear the video's original audio. This includes helping to distinguish between different people talking and emotional changes in their voice or non-vocal audio that's relevant to the storyline. Uh, and this is after they added a described video category, which uh, <laughs> services visually impaired individuals. Um, which I didn't even know there was described video for porn. Because I would, I mean, I, <laughs> listen, I get off on word descriptions. Sure. Yes. Which is, what, well, look, yes, uh, we're getting into very interesting territory here. But yeah, one of the reasons that this article is so interesting is because, say it with me now, I didn't know there was a whole lot of audio description necessary for porn. Uh, you know, a visual impairment and described video makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, but I always thought that a lot of porn was meant to be about the visual, right? right. Nobody, while, while I'm not shaming anybody's guilty pleasure... Ain't nobody going to porn for the realistic dialogue. No. And yet, I do like a little dialogue. Yeah, I like a little dialogue. I get it. But it can be, but, but a bad dialogue can, can tap you right out of it. Right. right. Like, so. Well, I don't mean like, here's your pizza dialogue. I mean, like, that feels good. Yeah. Oh, no, no. <laughs> I just wanted to be clear. 
No, yeah, I, I <laughs> no, I hear you. Um, but you know, this could be considered to be a complaint with mainstream porn, I guess, in any of these verticals. Uh, is yeah, there's often not a lot of talking and not a lot of dialogue. So, uh, you know, if you, it's inter- it's an interesting concept to think about. And I we're laughing and it's funny, but I also think this is obviously a service that. Uh, was seen as, like, requested and, and is going to be well enjoyed. But, like, say it's something that is not dialogue heavy, either, yes, with a with a pizza double entendre or with a, like, hey, put that over here. Um, what is the audio going to be? Like, is it descriptions of the music, for example? I don't know. I, I just, I don't know. I just feel like, you know, listen – we're not just including this topic because it's titillating. This is really interesting that, as you said, Duanna, we think or I think the presumption about porn is that, listen, like all you need is a few minutes of of dicks and pussies and tits. Sound, descriptions for those who, you know, don't need the described and the closed captioning or Closed caption, I mean, like, I mean, I don't even know why you would need it. That's the presumption. And yet, even with a business that has been, let's say, established and obvious, they're trying to improve it. Absolutely. They're trying to improve it. Like, and they're doing the work to make it better and more stimulating. Yeah. And like, literally, if you take the product out of it, that we're talking about, this is one of those letters that where the CEO says, we are constantly working to serve our customers better. You're like, yeah, you kind of are. Yeah. And again, we are constantly working to service our customers better. We are constantly understanding better who our clients are and what their needs are. And I love that because of course, People who have hearing impairments or visual impairments are still sexual beings uh, who are going to be as interested in porn as anybody else. But yeah, there have been decades upon decades where they wouldn't have been acknowledged, where they would have had to have workarounds of their own. Um, The other thing that's really interesting about this is that we do think of porn as being a bit titillating, as you say, and a bit, I think, under the table, right? Like if you were, when we were talking in our our last segment about the hard work of many people on any given project, I think there's an assumption, we we joke about porn being made in somebody's basement or whatever, right? That it's sort of a, a guy with a camera and call it a day. But I think there are parts of of pornography as if there are parts of anything else that are really hard working and really uh, where a lot of attention is being paid. What I'm getting at here is that in order to make this service work, they have to take the titillation out of it. So for example, in the described video section, it says, videos in the described video section feature voiceovers, including descriptions of the models, their actions, position changes, outfits, and settings. You can't have any squeamishness about that. You have to be 
really straightforward about everything that's going on in order to make that service work, right? But also that requires an investment. Like there's a cash infusion that's happened um, here where they have said, in order to better service our clients, Mm -hmm. we need to hire the people, first of all, to write that dialogue, description, script, and have whoever read it. That's right. And then conceivably that same script or whatever could be used for uh for the for the closed captioning yeah essentially but again it has to be and then the technology to add it into the video yeah i mean yes that's right to turn it on permanently for sure but i guess yeah it has to be done professionally it has to be done uh quality in if you're going to release a press release like this that says hey our porn now has closed captioning, then you better be sure it works. You better be sure it's going to benefit those clients that you're looking to benefit. So that means they've taken care. They've done quality control to make sure it is up to standards. We're laughing a little bit, but it's kind of amazing. Okay, but now you know what we have to do. You want to go look at some porn and see about the captioning. Well, I want to go to the describe video section. Okay, got it. Okay, ready? Okay, so, so just give us a, a rundown of what it is you have here. So I'm. Uh... <laughs> I, I, I meant I, I was looking a little more vaguely than your face is. Uh, what I meant to say. So you went looking to see what one of these videos would look like. Right. So the audio is off, but I am watching um, a young man in bed with. A uh, a woman and she has glasses on. Are so, you doing the? So I think that this is a teacher uh, okay. uh, fantasy. So are you reading the captions as well? The captions um, were coming up and now they're gone. Oh, okay. No, no. Uh, sorry. So now I'm reading the captions. And so far, there's been an O, as an O-H. Right. And now there's an uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and there hasn't been anything else because I guess they're not very verbal with each other. Right. I mean, this she's, might… She's focusing on performing um, a, a pleasurable task on him. Right. I mean, this might be your choice of video that is, uh, you know, le- uh, that requires less closed captioning maybe than some. But we get the idea of how this how this works. It's cool. I thought it would be a little bit better. So far in that video, it was just a yeah and an O. Oh. How many videos are there on a your average uh, pornography hub? Lots, site? lots and lots and lots. Like like hundreds of thousands, right? Right. Right. That was one. Yeah. It was good quality, <laughs> I'll say. <laughs> um, it was good quality. But anyway, to the point, the point is they've added this technology. They've hired people to uh, add this feature on. To expand 
their ability to expand their reach and to expand the satisfaction or at least grow the satisfaction of their client base. Oh, you used the word satisfaction. (laughs) That is low-hanging fruit. No, but you know what? It's also like it legitimizes all those users, right? If you can use these features, then it's like, oh, okay, do you have some visual impairment? Do you have some hearing impairment? Sure, you can still enjoy porn. It is also for you. I think it's it's expanding their services in a really smart way. But, I mean, the message here is if even porn is servicing a clientele in a more fulfilling way, specifically hearing impaired, visually impaired, mm-hmm. Why are so many other workplaces getting it wrong? Well, you know, I'm not well-versed enough in the adult industry to really speak to this, but I suspect they would say that sometimes porn is at the forefront of things that other places feel afraid to take on, right? Like, there's very few taboos in that industry, so why not take it on? I think that's actually, uh, that's a decent thread that I believe could be the case. That makes sense to me. It does make sense to me. And also, this is what we pound all the time, and we have to continue this conversation. It's diversity. It's reach. It's inclusion. It's allowing those people to be seen, right? Hey, you exist. You exist, and so here is a service that works for you. You exist, and so here is a movie for you. Here is a, like, a casting choice that speaks to who you are. It's about seeing all of the people and going like, we have the room. It's the, it's the internet. It's the world. There is enough room to, to allow everybody to be seen. I'm very, very, I'm into that. Well, you're exactly right about categories and interests because the way that, as you said, you used the word earlier, the way that they divide their verticals is something for everyone. And they cover like whatever weird fetish is out there, like cartoons doing it, uh, like ice cream doing it, uh, uh, vegetables. Yeah, sure. Whatever whatever you want, right? But it's all listed kind of uh, alongside one another. So there's nothing that is, wait for it, supposed to be more of a guilty pleasure than another, right? If you want two straight people doing it missionary style, that is right up alongside whatever you were telling me about uh, vegetables and cartoons. So if nothing's a guilty pleasure, then it can just be a pleasure. They might actually be ahead of the game here. Well, people keep talking lately because Netflix is like there are articles being written left, right, and center about Netflix and the the term that Netflix has used is taste cluster. Ooh, interesting. Right? This is the the this is the two-word term that is most closely associated with Netflix. It's that algorithm, it's that super secret thing that they are collecting data on their users like us. According to our viewing ha- according to our viewing habits, and they mine that data to develop these taste clusters, and it works in several ways. One of the ways is when you turn on your Netflix screen, according to your taste cluster assignment, certain recommended 
shows, movies will pop up immediately on like the first screen and the likelihood of you choosing it in the first five or six pages is higher. That's number one. Number two, the taste clusters work for them to develop their research to understand what people want more of. They are the rom-com king right now, and it was because their research through their taste clusters determined for them that there was a market for rom-coms. Their customers were accessing lots and lots of rom-coms. They're like, let's put some money into rom-coms. So Netflix is getting great, great, great buzz for these taste clusters. But I wonder if, hey, porn sites were doing this all like along. Isn't this a taste cluster? Like I want to watch fucking anime doing it. I, I mean, I don't know if it's a cluster because it's all available to you. Like it's, but yeah, sure. Maybe the greatest hits come up first and then you self-select from there. Sure. But it's people knowing reliably that they can get what they want when they go there. That as you say, there's every category known to man. So you don't have to worry that your particular taste cluster won't be represented. I think we did good work here, Duanna. We just related Pornhub and Netflix. And it's not even your birthday. It's not my birthday. So um, if it's your thing, enjoy your porn. Uh, you know, let us know about whether there's, let us know if there's a feature that uh, doesn't yet exist that you would like to along the lines of the described audio or described video. I'm, I'm curious about that. Or don't let us know. You can let Pornhub know directly because they actually have like a feedback page. Um, it says here, um, email your feedback to accessibility at Pornhub.com. So oh they have a God. department. Well done, Pornhub. For you to reach them if you want a certain thing added to their um, verticals. Right. But you also, I can't believe you just asked people not to send you emails about sexy oh, stuff. Oh, fuck. I want that too. It's just that I might not be able to do anything about it, but I do want to know what your kink is for sure. I thought so. That's the person I know. All right. Thank you for listening this season. Thank you for all of your emails and all the times you helped us see things in a broader sense, the ways that you showed us the way that work was happening in your workplace or in your homes or lives. They are so fascinating and we read them with such joy and thankfulness. And remember, we um, are definitely going to pop in at least once with a special during hiatus episode um, during which we'll read some emails. Yeah, I should point out that this special episode is usually when something terrible happens. So cross your fingers for... Nothing terrible happening. Some amazing celebrity work moment that is so important. We just got to break in here. Or Crazy Rich Asians. Or Crazy Rich Asians. And hopefully a whole lot of outfit porn on top of everything else. Have a great summer. Work hard. We'll be back. Uh, check us out on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. Subscribe to us. Leave us your comments. Bye. We will see you in season three. Bye. Bye.